This is an ABC podcast. It is fair to say that I hated high school. I hate it. I do know kids who have gotten themselves arrested just so they can't go because their parents force them to. He used to say to me, Mum, if I get up any earlier, it's longer that I have to think about going to school. When I was at school, I felt emotionally drained, physically drained, sad, alone. At the end of each lockdown, it got harder and harder for my daughter to walk back in that classroom. Some mornings he just screams and rants and cries and throws things and punches his brother because he is acting out and, and has no intention of going to school. And it culminated with one morning with my daughter clinging to the school fence, bawling her eyes out while all the other children walked into the classroom. And I felt completely hopeless as a parent. He ends up crying in his room. I end up crying in my room. Uh, My husband ends up storming off to work. It's a very painful way to start the day. One of the really huge impacts of the pandemic has been on our kids' schooling. Stop, start, lockdowns, no assemblies, leave at the gate, on again, off again, remote learning, periods and ISO, holy heck. It's been challenging for everyone. And now that they are back, we are hearing that more kids than ever before really don't want to be there. Hi, I'm Maggie Dent, and on this Parental as Anything, what do you do when your kid comes home and says, I hate school! <laughs> Oh, you're not alone. School refusal is such a complex problem and it can happen to any family, anywhere. So today, we'll hear the warning signs for you to look out for, some simple strategies to put in place, how to flag the issue with teachers, and we cover the eternal question, when should you just change schools? understand what's going on with school refusal, school reluctance, whatever you want to call it, we need someone who's walked the talk. Adam Voigt has many, many, many playground duties under his belt. Adam is a former principal who now consults to schools everywhere and he has a very practical approach to dealing with school resistance and refusal. So let's start at the very beginning. What makes kids start to hate school? Most of the time, it's a it's a feeling, it's an emotion, it's a sense of failure in some way for a young person. Now, that could be academically, they feel like they're just not doing well in the classroom, and so it becomes a place that they'd rather not be, because that's the sense that they have about a classroom, is that it's a place where I fail and I feel some shame and some embarrassment as a result of that. It could be socially, so it could be the, the bullying, for instance, monster has appeared in their lives, and when we get bullied, we, we get really emotional and we find it very hard to strategize our own way out of that. So kids who do experience bullying, particularly from the wrong end, but you know what, also the kids who perpetrate it need help, need support to be able to turn that around. And I think then we also have situations where young people are just lacking some resilience. Teachers are reporting far too readily that kids are struggling to be able to, well, we talk about it at real schools as moving their resilience as their resilience isn't mobile. So we all, I reckon, know a kid who would finish a game of football with a broken ankle, but who 
loses his mind if you put fractions in front of him. And so they're able to show resilience in some places, but not in others. And clever parenting um, for me is about putting little risks, little challenges in front of kids. And for us as parents, it's sometimes thinking about what are the things that we're doing for our kids at the moment that they actually could do for themselves. Oh, totally. And so, okay, help us out here. What are some of the warning signs that perhaps parents should look out for that say, you know, particularly our primary age children are starting to struggle? So one of the things that's common in primary school students who are, you know, beginning, I guess, to, to slide down towards school refusal is they invent illnesses. So anytime as a parent that your radar, and our, and our radar for our, for our kids is pretty strong, but anytime your kid's telling you something that's, you know, about their health, for instance, that you go, that just doesn't add up. <laughs> there mm. may be something mm. at school or there may be something that they're feeling about school that's in the way. The other thing is that kids in particular tend to do when they're moving towards that school refusal habit in their life is that they exaggerate. <laughs> so they might have had an issue with their teacher, but they'll be saying, my teacher hates me. And it really was they just had one interaction that didn't go the way they wanted it to go. Or they'll have a friendship that hasn't worked out for them and they'll say that nobody likes me, I have no friends. So if we can listen for that language, there's usually a way to take that edge off it and get to work on it because the problem's often smaller and that means it actually can be overcome quite quickly. We know that tweens and teens can be tricky to communicate uh, even when they're not struggling, seriously. Um, So what... Are there any different signs, Adam, when this sort of behaviour, school reluctance and refusal happens? Yeah, it tends to be with uh, with our with our tweens and teens. It tends to be that the bottling up of the issue and the hiding of the issue becomes a little more sophisticated and can last longer. And as a result, it's almost like a catapult effect. The outburst is bigger. <laughs> you yeah. know, so, yeah. like you mentioned, it Maggie, is very that, you know, bigger. <laughs> it, it definitely is. Yeah, you know, they're capable of slamming a door and knocking the hinges mm-hmm. off it, aren't they? At that stage, yeah. you know, in, in the earlier um, ages, it'll be the the Sunday night effect where you know all of a sudden. I've got a sore throat on a Sunday night, a little a little habitually. Whereas um, with the teens, you might actually have to a bit of a look at this. Things going on, they might be going to school, but they're coming home in a worse mood than when they left. And then you might experience the occasional blow up. And I think it's really as important as a parent that after the, the blow up, we kind of don't deal so much with the blow up, but what's underneath it. I have had to work with kids who've had a friendship blow up that didn't seem that major but that they immediately decided they they just couldn't go back into that space. So friendship issues, not just bullying issues, can also be a trigger, can't they, Adam? Yeah, they certainly can. We we tend as as human beings to sort of over exaggerate the negative, don't we? Mm-hmm. If I have a negative interaction with a friend, it feels devastating because that friendship must be over. Yeah. So I think it's really important that we we spot that. And when our kids are, for instance, exaggerating a negative interaction and making it catastrophic, that we're helping them to be able to describe it in more detail to us, and to save the catastrophic language for actual catastrophes, and to talk. To them about what would be the worst thing that could happen to you. And that's right at the top of the catastrophe scale. But you know what? Having a, a half dodgy lunchtime with a with a friend on one particular day probably doesn't come in at a 10 out of 10. Okay. There is other big stuff that can impact school reluctance and refusal to attend. And we can't just blame the individual student, can we? Because it's our system keeps assuming that it's one size fits all. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more there, Maggie. I think that any time where you know, we've got a situation where a young person's refusing school, uh, blame in any direction tends to be really unhelpful, because when we get blamed, we get you know we feel attacked and we we defend. So a, a young person will defend the reasons that they can't attend school. If we blame a parent, they'll defend the reasons that they've tried everything and that they can't they can't step forward with it. And I think the other the really, I guess, profound mistake that we make, particularly when we're dealing with kids who are battling their way through trauma or mental illness, is that we make we, we make the decision or we make the distinction between refusing to go to school and going to school too stark. So yeah. we don't actually yeah. we don't actually create little steps for kids to be able to make progress on that. And that's the whole thing of being at school is that you you love being at school when you feel like you're making progress. You know, my most successful story that I remember of a a student who was um who was school refusing, the first step was not to try and get them from refusing school to going to school. The first step was actually just getting them to get up at the same time that they would mm. go to school. Yeah. The second step was actually to put their school uniform on, uh, but stay at home. And the third step was to put their uniform on at the, at the right time and just go with mum while she dropped the other kids off at school. And we were able to just take some of that that anxiety that's felt so acutely by kids who've experienced trauma and just slowly replace some of that profound anxiety with tiny chunks of progress. And I find that that's a much more respectful and productive way of tackling school refusal than trying to find someone to blame. And school refusal can take some parents by complete surprise. It just comes out of nowhere. It sure did for Rose. I guess I often think back to the first time sending him off to his first day of prep at primary school and I really thought about what that next chapter of our lives was going to bring and all the school sports days and camps and uniforms and school bags and having to embark on many, many years of making school lunches and and all of those sorts of things in my head. Not one of them was thinking about what it might be like on the day he didn't want to go. For him, the mornings are really hard to describe. They were nothing less than excruciating, trying to get him up out of bed, to get in the car, to go to the school. And it feels like a bit of an overreach when I say trauma, but it was genuine trauma for him to think about how to turn up and face the school environment. And I just never thought school could be that level of fear, given the experience I'd had myself. For Rose, it was a long and difficult process getting her son back to school. His social and learning needs were especially complex as he was diagnosed with autism during this time. They tried homeschooling, they looked at a number of different schools until they found one that had a strong wellbeing team that could give him the support he needed. Rose also enlisted help from a GP, occupational therapist and Leo's grandparents. So in the end, we really formed a a team around what was happening. And from that school where we found the really great wellbeing team, we ended up, as it happened, sort of moving into state and finding an even better situation where um, they're able to focus on his individual situation and his learning where we're offered strategies around differing start times, even having days working from home with structured support from school. And probably the thing that made 
the most difference, of course, is always finding what, what drives them and the passion, but also knowing that you're not just turning up and being stuck somewhere and and at the beginning of the day thinking there's this enormous day I have to face, just breaking it up into little sections. If we make it to recess, then that's a bonus. If we're feeling okay and we can make it through to lunch, then let's focus on that. And both with the anxiety around school and his general mental health situation, that was a really great strategy to be able to enlist. But Adam, what about parents at the very beginning of all this? Say their child has just started refusing to go to school a couple of days a week. How should they react? And what should they do early on? Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think most parents in this situation sort of find themselves quite emotional and worried. And I think we have to realise that as parents, that our job when we've got a young person who's got themselves so emotional that they are starting to refuse going to school, even like a day a week, is that they're looking for somebody to keep their thinking hat on. So if we as parents can say, right, I'm going to be the person that thinks this through rather than joins you in your emotion, then we can start to strategize. We can start to do some of the things that make a difference. So getting really clear and devising the plan with your child and saying, okay, so our plan is at the moment we we want to get you to school four out of five days a week. That's our target. And then putting a little, you know, even using an extrinsic reward that really floats the boat of your child. So think about, don't just give them like, you know, uh, an extra half an hour on the computer, but just look at what they're interested in and look at what they love and show that you see that in them and give them something that really matters to them. And uh, we want them to kind of have this response to the extrinsic reward of, you know, no way, really? And um, if we get that in place, we can get a, that extrinsic Extrinsic rewards are awesome for getting a behaviour started, not so good for keeping it there. We're hoping that in time, once we get the behaviour started, that actually succeeding at school will take over any need for an extrinsic reward, but it's a good way to get it started. I also think the sooner you can kind of get in there and make some little shifts, because the more it becomes a habit, the harder it is to change. And that's really why it's little steps and, and acknowledging things early on. So, okay, so with primary age kids, do we go to the teacher first or do you think we should go to the principal? Yeah, I reckon a casual chat with the, with the teacher is, is a wonderful first step. If nothing else, when you have a casual chat with the teacher, you're not accusing the teacher of having done something wrong so they don't have their own little shame yeah. response to, to that or feel yeah. blamed. But you're also adding to the team who are trying to solve this problem together. So when you go to a teacher and say, you know, I've got this issue – do you reckon we could work together on this a little bit? Could we have a coffee and a chat about how we might tackle that? And even saying to, I know a, a parent recently, and she said to the teacher, how do you have your coffee? I'll bring one in. Yeah, and um, I've, I've seen wow. I've, I've, I've seen the four litre can of international roast in your staff room. You don't want that. <laughs> yeah. um, and the parent who brought the coffee in and sat down, it's just such a wonderful way to say, I'd love to work on this together. A teacher's often got wonderful intel, wonderful strategy on how to be able to tackle this. And they might help you get to the other side of this problem really quickly. So, Adam, my oldest brother, who was a rooster and very confident and very active, <laughs> uh, was getting cane most days of the week for being uncooperative. So he wagged school for two weeks as a 14-year-old and he told his mates to tell the staff he was really sick. Uh, but my dad was a PNC president and he only found out about it when the principal asked him how he was recovering from his serious illness. So what do parents do when they find out that they're not actually turning up when you think they are? What do you do uh, in the high school setting? 
Um, I, I think that it's really important for parents whenever their kids fail, whenever their kids make a mistake because they, they're horribly flawed with you know, unfinished brains and they're going to, is to control our own emotional response. And I think the right response, I'm often telling parents, is between zero and 10, the right range is kind of between three and seven where you care about the fact that it's happened. So a zero would be whatever, that's a school problem. 10 would be, oh my goodness, this is mm-hmm. the end of the world. Three to seven kind of says that I care, but I haven't lost the plot. And the way that we don't lose the plot is to ask questions. So instead of making assumptions, instead of going, you go to your room, I'll go down to the school and we'll solve this, would be to sit down, eyeball them, stare them in the eye, get comfortable with silence when they don't answer, but say, tell me the story, what's going on? And don't fill the gap. Let that silence fill because I can guarantee you in that awkward, horrible silence, they're thinking and that's what we need. You know, yeah. for a young person, for any person to change their behaviour, they've got to think about it first. I mean, none of us like woke up this morning accidentally on a diet, did we? You know, you've got, <laughs> you've, you've got to think about that behaviour first before you'll bother to eat half a grapefruit for breakfast. We've got to get these kids to think about it. And once they think about it, articulate it, we can know exactly what we're, what we're working on. So, I think as a parent, if you can drop the need to tell them stuff and lecture and replace it with the need to ask a lot of questions so you can understand, then that's the most powerful first step I can think of. Totally. And having taught in high school for years, I know that parents would often express to me, so who do I go and see when I have a concern? And one of my first things is, is there a teacher somewhere in the school that your kid has spoken about in a fond way or they kind of like? Because sometimes Just having one lighthouse figure in the high school is the place to go to. But I would have thought student services before because they've got so many teachers, haven't they, Adam? So you can't just... And you, no parent is welcome on a school high school site, seriously, plus you'd get lost. So what, what are your suggestions there if it's a high school kid and approaching the school? What would your suggestions be there? I agree with your first suggestion there, Maggie, about thinking about who it is that they have an existing connection with. So what we what we know about kids who refuse school is sometimes, as we spoke about, they're struggling a little bit with personal resilience. What we know about young people who are resilient, and this is a really common feature, is that they have extensive support networks and they use them. So they often could think about five different domains of their lives. This is an exercise we do. Sometimes we get them to map their hand on a piece of paper and talk about five different domains of their lives. So that might be school, it might be a sporting team, it might be their neighbourhood, it might be their family, and it might be a, a social group. And then we ask them to write a name on each finger of somebody that they would like to be able to talk to so that they've got at least five different people rather than being reliant on one. And sometimes you've got kids who really struggle to get five, but there's someone whose name they'd like to put there. And so it might just be a teacher at school who they'd like to be able to have a chat to when things are no good at school, but they just haven't quite got that connection. And we've done little, you know, lunchtime dates and things like that, just so that the PE teacher can have a chat with this kid about the problems that he's having in his football team. So I think teachers are up for that conversation and I think they're up for helping in that regard. And if you've heard that I like this teacher, then just letting the school know so they can nudge that teacher towards that student the next time they're on yard duty, uh, I think that's really helpful. As Adam mentioned, trouble with friendships is one of the major reasons kids stop going to school. At high school, the social pecking order can be brutal. So when Desiree's daughter Jasmine fell out with her group of friends, not even the teachers could help. Jasmine really didn't want to go to school. 
Some days I would drop her off and the tears would just start flowing when we get there. And I know, you know, I knew she couldn't just walk in to the classroom looking like that. So we would turn around, come back home, wait for her to calm down and then, you know, do a take two and see if she can go again later in the day. Um, I tried to talk to different teachers, trying to find ways around it. One day I went to the library to read like I usually did and um, I was talking to the librarian that worked at the school and she had noticed that I would sit in the library a lot by myself and just read and so she took that as I was lonely and I needed some friends so she decided that she was going to ask a group of girls to ask me to sit with them at lunchtime so in a way they were kind of forced to invite me into their group and I felt like they didn't really want me there so it was all around just a awkward and forced situation that didn't really help anything at all actually made it worse and I remember one day going to a parent talk where a psychologist came in and she explained how the different groups work at schools. Uh, she talked about the different sizes that, you know, it's about eight kids in a group and usually there's a person at the top and it's really difficult for anyone else in that friend group to invite anyone else into the group. It really has to come from the top. And I realised after that talk when she said that if your child can't get into one of these groups, she referred to it as a social death zone. And she said that when you reach that social death zone, she would really recommend you change schools. And the option Jasmine finally found worked best for her was distance education. I know that it's difficult to decide to leave but once you've made that decision it's so easy it's one of the best decisions that I've ever made I don't regret it at all so let's look at that option of changing schools Adam it's Mm. it can make a huge difference but not always so when do you know enough's enough it's time to whip them out and try and find a new environment what are your thoughts It's a really tricky one, isn't it? And I think particularly Mm. when the spectre of bullying sits over this is when parents really move quickly to moving schools. And I kind of, to a point, I really, I do understand that because even some of the research that we have around bullying is that if you take a student who's either been a perpetrator or has been on the receiving end of bullying in an environment where bullying is normalised, and drop them in an environment where it isn't normalised, the instances of either perpetrating or copying it drop away remarkably. So bullying is actually not a behavioural issue, it's a cultural issue. So I get that the temptation to drop a kid into a better culture, a different culture, is appealing. Except that nowadays they can get followed online. So, exactly. you know, you've got that cultural environment. Yeah, I think what we've got to do is stop and examine all of that and ask ourselves, one, is the actual issue an online one or is it an out-of-school one? And if so, changing schools is unlikely to make much difference. Exactly. And also asking ourselves, 
is it actually about the culture of the school or is it a challenge that my child is experiencing? Because changing schools, while it's a temptation, it's also about the biggest risk you can take in terms of a young person's academic trajectory. They tend to spend about three or four months learning the system but making no academic progress when they when they change schools. So they take a little hit in terms of their academic growth. So we've got to be cognizant that that's the risk we're taking. We've got to be cognizant that the environment that we've got them in now is making a contribution. It's not just a personal challenge. And we've got to be really clear that where we're taking them is a place where the culture is strong enough that they're going to feel that it's a place where they can, one, get their issues addressed when they emerge, and two, where they can feel safe and make progress. We sometimes drop a kid in a new school who is just as reluctant to to go to the new school as the old school, and we've gone to a lot of trouble for nothing. Adam, thank you so much. I absolutely loved our chat. It's been good fun, Maggie. Really appreciate you having me on. So here's a few of my suggestions around school reluctance, resistance and refusal, all the big R's. Firstly, keep an eye out for the very first signs that something is changing and gently and calmly explore what may be under it. Now notice, gently and calmly. Then check in with a teacher so that they're aware that something is happening early on so they can also keep an eye out for what's going on in the school space. Validate your child's feelings and anxiety and if you can, problem solve together because really that's where we're going to learn how to grow in that resilience that uh, Adam talks about. Keep in mind that there's something in the environment, either from the moment they leave your front door to the moment they come back in again. And it might not be at school, it might be on the school bus, it might be at recess, it might be just one thing that happened in the library. So discover, explore and find out what it is. And do encourage their bravery. Make a plan together. Make sure you've got some allies that can be on board within the school system and around. And don't forget, have an end-of-week celebration. Look, make sure it's really tasty. An ice cream's a great idea. And if you want to hear more about how Rose navigated her son's particularly challenging transition back to school, you can hear her full story in a special bonus episode only on the ABC Listen app. Plus, if you have little ones who are transitioning or who are getting a bit wobbly as they get to the end of a term, you need to check out one of our absolute most popular episodes, Tips to Starting School. It includes ideas that will help you at that school drop-off. One of my little ones, I put a kiss on one of my necklaces that she tucked in under her school shirt each day and it really did help her feel comforted. This is Parental As Anything and I'm Maggie Dent. If you've made it all the way to the end of this podcast, you're probably someone that doesn't shy away from the hard things in life. I'm Hilary Harper from the ABC podcast Life Matters, and this is the place where we get stuck into the meaty conversations of life. How do you deal with vaping teens? Can you lie to someone with dementia? Have you been dreaming about how to leave your job? No small talk here, just big talk on the things that matter, whatever form they take.
Come and have a chat with me on Life Matters on the ABC Listen app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.